Good to see everybody here. Hey, in last week's sermon, um, I talked about how important it is uh, for us to pause every now and then and acknowledge the evidences of God's grace in our midst. And so I want to I want to take a minute and, and do that. I want to recognize just a few ways, three ways I've seen God's grace in our church family since the last time we met last week. First, um, our No Tricks Just Treats event last Wednesday was another huge success. So thank you to everybody who participated in that. Yes, help us love our neighbors, and there, were a mass, there was a massive cleanup crew here on Friday, or went Thursday. Thank you guys. Um, not including our 50-plus volunteers and their families, we had over 700 neighbors come through our church doors on uh, Wednesday night. So praise God for that. And man, I know a number of us had great conversations with new people and and uh, several people uh, filled out a form and said they would like a pastor to contact them from our church. They want to know more about Cedar Home. And so um, let's be praying. Please be praying for these people um, as, as we seek to show the light of Jesus to our neighbors. And, uh, and make sure you give Kim Nelson a big pat on the back for leading another great event for our church. So, yeah. <clears throat> Second, uh, in the passage we looked at a few weeks ago, we read about the power of evangelistic hospitality, and I challenged all of us to invite a non-Christian individual or family over for dinner sometime before Thanksgiving, just to love on them, and, and I, was, I was a little surprised by the response. I've heard from a lot of people who've, who have done this already uh, since, since that challenge, and who are planning to do it, and I just thank you. Um, thank you. I'm, I'm excited about that, and let's keep praying for for uh, for these people. I mean, I, I heard I talked to somebody this morning who just this week had some some of their neighbors over, and it's for them it's kind of more of a starting pl- point for their relationship. So we need to keep praying for our neighbors. So that was encouraging. And uh, I was excited about the parenting class this morning and a big pat on the back to the parents who came to that. I know it's early at 845, but uh, thank you for being there. I snuck that one in. And then third, um, it's, it's really, you know, Dylan and I were talking about this, just how special it is that we get to partake in both ordinances this morning. We don't always get to do that, but... Um, the ordinances that Jesus commanded us to partake in are baptism and communion. They go hand in hand together. And in baptism, uh, we, we, it's, it reminds us of what Jesus has done for all of us who believe in him, that he's baptized us into himself. He's forgiven our sins. He's raised us to a new life. And now together as a church, we celebrate that Christ's body was broken for our sins, that his blood was shed for our forgiveness in order to bring us to God. And, and we will declare that gospel regularly until the day of Jesus' return. And we'll do that as we take communion together uh, after the sermon today. Well, as we've seen in the past few chapters of the book of Acts, Uh, the early Christian church was also characterized by many evidences of God's grace 
among them. And at the very same time, the, we saw these evidences of God's grace. There were, you know, massive revival happening, people getting healed, people being raised from the dead. At the same time that that was happening, the church was also, at the very same time, suffering persecution and heartbreaking tragedies. And God's word shows us over and over again that the suffering and persecution of Christians is not um, in contradiction with the flourishing and the multiplication of God's people. Some of the greatest things that have ever happened in the church throughout history and in the lives of Christians has been either during suffering or has come as the result of suffering. And scripture's explanation for why this is so is, is that God is good and that he really is purposeful in what he does and that he really wants joy for us and that he really is in control and that nobody can or ever will throw, thwart God's promises and plans, okay? And, and deeply ingrained in the minds of the early Christians was, was a biblically grounded, wholehearted belief in God's sovereignty. That is his authority, God's dominion, God's power, God's control over all things. And this belief comforted the early church both in good times and in bad times. And they believed that God was working out his plans for their joy and for the glory of his name. One of the first prayers that the early church prayed that we have written down is in Acts 4, 24 to 31, which the church prayed immediately after the Jewish Sanhedrin commanded them to stop talking about Jesus, stop preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. And this is what the Christians prayed at that point in Acts 4, 24 to 31. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So as the first Christians continued to turn to the Lord for their strength and for their help, 
the Lord continued to fill them with boldness and love in the face of persecution and suffering. And this is what we're going to see again in the passage we're in today. If you've got your Bible, please turn with me to Acts chapter 12, verse 1. And if you don't own a Bible, please let us know. We'd be glad to give you a Bible or to tell you where you can buy one. Before we read this, let's ask God to to help us. Let's pray a similar prayer to the prayer that they prayed in the early church. Dear Sovereign Lord Jesus, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. We are your creation and we belong to you. We are yours. And any person or power that sets itself against you does so in vain. Thank you, Jesus, for reconciling us to God through faith in your life and death and resurrection for us. And as we open your word today, Lord, please move among us in power, Holy Spirit, Please grant our minds and our hearts life and refreshment in you. Help me right now and help all of us to continue to speak the gospel with boldness. Please protect us from evil and may your name be glorified here now. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Let's begin here by reading Acts 12, 1 to 3. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. Let's stop there. So verse one here, it starts with this phrase, about that time. And it's referring to that verse before, okay? What does it say? It says, and they did so, sending to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So about that time is referring to what happened when the, when the Antioch Christians decided to send money to the Christians in Jerusalem to help them survive this upcoming famine that was prophesied. And so about the time that that was happening, um, the Christians in Jerusalem, who were now going to be the recipients of this offering, were facing a different type of danger. They were facing a resurgence of intense persecution by the government. And we read here about Herod Agrippa, the first. This is the Herod. Remember in Jesus' life, there was a bad king, Herod, right? Who tried to kill Jesus. Well, that was Herod the Great. This was his grandson, Herod Agrippa the first. And Herod Agrippa the first, at this point, was king over all of Judea. Basically what we would consider the Holy Land. And, and he was determined to arrest and torture and kill all the Christians in his area. And so Herod started by arresting and killing the leaders first, the leaders of the Christians. 
And verse 2 says that Herod struck a massive blow against the church by killing James, the brother of John, with the sword. We've got to stop sometime, sometimes when we read little phrases in Scripture because it, it, there's a lot in there in just a little phrase. Think about this for a second. This was James. James was one of the 12 apostles. James is one of the very first men that Jesus invited to follow him when, when Jesus was walking next to the Sea of Galilee. He was the, the apostle John's brother. Did you ever think about that? That's just something that hit me. So when John wrote his gospel and when he wrote First and Second and Third John, he did that after his brother was dead. That was in the back of his mind. So when, he, when the Spirit led him to write about, I am the resurrection and the life, he wasn't just writing, he was like, this is personal. This is personal for me. He and his brother, John and his brother, James, they were a duo, I mean, they were a duo. They got a nickname, the Sons of Thunder, okay? And, and both of them, they, they made, in the, within the disciples, there was kind of a subgroup called the Inner Three, which include James and John and Peter. And, they, and Jesus called them to go to special things with him, like when he went to the top of the mountain when he was transfigured, and there were certain occasions where it was just the three of them. So James was very special to Jesus, too, in a unique way. He was, he was probably young. He was probably in his 30s. Uh, he'd been one of the pillars of the early church in Jerusalem, and now the king had just slain him. And his death, James's death, must have been devastating for his brother John and for the other apostles and for the rest of the Christians in Jerusalem. It was a big deal. Now, when Herod did this, when Herod killed James, it says something happened. Herod saw that it had an effect. It pleased the Jews, which basically means that... The, these were the people he was ruling over, okay? And the cheers of the people he was ruling over were so intoxicating to him that Herod resolved to do more Christian killing so that the crowds would keep applauding him and so that he could get more of that high, right? And verse three says that Herod proceeded then to arrest the apostle Peter with the intent of killing him. And Herod was probably thinking to himself, you guys, you thought James' death was good? You just wait. I'm going to kill Peter. I'm going to kill the leader of the Christians. And then you're really going to cheer my name. Well, verses 3 to 4 say this. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So <clears throat> when Herod arrested Peter, it was during the days of the unleavened bread, which is another name for the festival of Passover, which is a seven or eight day, very important Jewish festival. And since Herod was part Jewish, he knew that the Jewish law commanded that you, you couldn't you couldn't, you, couldn't, uh, you couldn't kill somebody during the Passover feast. You had to wait till that 
was over so that he didn't desecrate the feast. And so Herod locked up Peter in prison where Peter would wait until Passover was over until he was killed. And verse four says this, it says that Herod assigned plenty of Roman guards to guard Peter in prison. He, there were four squads, it says, and each squad would guard Peter during a separate three-hour shift during the night. And each squad had four soldiers. So we're talking about 16 total big bad Roman soldiers, okay? There were two soldiers who stood guard at the cell of, uh, of Peter. And then they, the other two guards would sit next to him on either side of him. Okay. This, is, this is quite the, uh, the, 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 um, the guard for a guy who is just a, a, a fisherman from Galilee, okay? An unarmed guy. I mean, they, they, they had 16 guys on him. Now, they knew that he was associated with Jesus and look what happened when Jesus was guarded. Well, maybe that was part of it. I don't know. But we see in, in these first four verses here, it's depicting the different types of strength that humankind can set against God's people, against the church. You got persecution from the government. You got King Herod killing Christians in order to gain the uh, applause of people. And then you've got these 16 soldiers working together to guard this one man. Now, so that's the, the, the power of the world, right? And contrasted with that power against the church, we see in the next verse, verse five, how God employs his soldiers. He leads them to pray together. Verse five says, so Peter was kept in prison but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Think about this. I mean, put yourself in the mind of one of these Christians. I mean, they'd already gone through a major persecution in Jerusalem, and now it's, 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 it's been uh, stirred up again. One of the church's main leaders, James, has just been slaughtered by the king, and now their main leader, Peter, is in prison waiting to be slaughtered too. How is the church going to respond? How, what's it going to do? It says they devoted themselves to praying to God earnestly, means like wholeheartedly, intensely for Peter. And this seems to be a pattern in the book of Acts. One, one of the clearest lessons in this book for the church today, for us, is that we must devote ourselves to praying together as a church in good times and in bad times. It, it is not enough to pray just when we're alone or just when, with, when we're with our families. That is good, that's important. But we must also commit to praying with our church family. <clears throat> if you think about how God describes the church in the New Testament through the writers he inspired, he uses words like, the church is a body with many parts. You are a part, if you're in Christ, of the corporate body. And Christ is the head. The, the church is a temple built with many stones. The church is a family built with many relatives. 
And God works in powerful ways when these parts get together and pray. Our church purpose statement says that we, at Cedar Home, we desire to glorify God by making disciples through gospel-centered worship and community and service and multiplication. Well, how do we do that? Well, first and most importantly, by humbling ourselves before the Lord in prayer and asking him to do it through us. That's how you do it. We, we don't advance God's kingdom on earth by running out into the streets and using up our own energy and ideas to make disciples. No, we start, we need to start by praying together. We need to commit ourselves to first asking God to give our, change our hearts about prayer, God. Give our hearts the desire, give our bodies the ability, and give our words the power of the Spirit to make disciples in Jesus' name. And to want what you want, God. The power of, of Christians praying together is one of the reasons why um, we so strongly, the elders so strongly want to see everyone here plugged into one of our community groups. Um, community groups are a group of people with whom you can fellowship and grow in Jesus together and pray for each other every week. And the power of Christians praying together is why we've committed ourselves as a church to gather once a quarter for the whole purpose of, of praying together. Our last prayer gathering was a couple weeks ago. It was, it was an awesome time together. And man, I want all of you to come be part of that if you're in Christ. I mean, even if you choose not to pray out loud, that's okay. But if you're a Christian, think about this. If, if you are a Christian, then God says he has made you a unique part of his body. And that means your presence and your prayers with the church benefit the other parts of the body and it benefits the body as a whole. And then on an individual level, and you and I, let's get really real, you and I and every one of us in here, we are all facing all sorts of different trials and battles and anxieties in our lives. And what we need to do is humble ourselves before the Lord and get real with one another about how we're really doing and we need to pray for each other. Charles Spurgeon, who is one of the best preachers to ever walk the planet, believed so strongly in corporate prayer that he said, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general until the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. God does not need us to pray in order to do incredible things in the world. but he invites us to pray so that we can play a real part in how he is unleashing his glory on earth and in heaven. See that? He invites us into this. It's a, it's a privilege to make an eternal spiritual impact on earth and in heaven. And 
I mean, these, these first Christians in Jerusalem, obviously they were flawed. We know that there were, you know, conflicts and different things going on. But as a corporate church, they set an amazing example for us in many things because they did believe strongly in God's sovereign power. And at the same time, though, they didn't use the belief in God's sovereign power as an excuse not to pray. Instead, it says that they earnestly prayed together as a church. And they believed that God unleashes power. He unleashes power in response to the prayers of his people because he appointed them to pray. See that? Our praying is the appointment of God. This is how the kingdom spreads on earth. I want us to watch a short video interview here with um, Sinclair Ferguson, and it's called Why, it's only a couple minutes, Why Should We Pray If God Has Planned All Things? We understand that what we do as Christians, we do for a variety of reasons. One is because God has taught us to do it in his word. So the bargain basement level answer to the question is, that we pray because God has told us to pray, even if we don't understand how prayer works and how he employs our prayer. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to say that the sovereignty of God does not destroy human responsibility, but is actually the foundation for it. And the sovereignty of God never destroys secondary causes. So what we want to say is that God plans all things. We pray because, among other things, our prayers are part of the instrumentation God has planned in order that he would fulfill his purposes. So this is, this is really, when you think about it, it's a really wonderfully gracious thing that God has the power to do things without us, without our prayers, without our intercession. But he's our father. And so he wants to catch us up into his purposes, just like a father would do with his own children. You know, you could say, get out of my way, I'll do that. But uh, a, a true human father doesn't do that. A true human father comes along and uh, brings his children along and uh, brings them into his purposes and delights to see them grow in fulfilling his aspirations for them. So earlier we read in verse 2 that Herod killed the apostle James with the sword. We don't know much about the circumstances surrounding James's death. But it's not at all unlikely that the church in Jerusalem had earnestly prayed for James to be spared from death. We don't know that for a fact, but if, the, if, we, if it were to follow the same pattern as the other instances in Acts we've seen, then it's, it's very possible they prayed for James to be spared from death. But that's not what happened, is it? That wasn't God's plan for James or for God's church. Psalm 139.16 says, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. 
So even when God does not answer our prayers the way that we've asked him to, it does not mean that we have prayed in vain or that we have believed in God in vain or that God has allowed a mistake to happen. No, if you've prayed earnestly and your prayers were not answered the way that you'd so desperately hoped, you did the right thing by obeying God and by praying to him. And Christian, God did hear you. And he is working out his mysterious good plan for you and for, for, for those in Christ. And he is with you in your heartache. Even when your prayers aren't answered exactly how you want them to be prayer, uh, answered. And we, we must trust that God is working out his plan. And do we have any basis to trust God? Can we believe that God is trustworthy? This is one of the reasons it's so important to read scripture, you guys. Think about this. Even through the absolute worst tragedy in human and cosmic history, which was the death of the holy and innocent Son of God, God has worked through that to bring life and salvation and light to our darkness for the glory of his name and because of his love for humanity. And we know that the end of our story is already written, okay? Not just as individuals, yes, God knows the day. He's, he's appointed for you. But also we know how the story of humanity on earth ends. We know that God already um, is, he has appointed the day to come back and he is coming back. And that for the Christian, for those who have trusted in Christ, that we will experience perfect, full, eternal peace with Jesus when we're done with this life on earth and our future glorification in body and soul is coming when Jesus comes back. So if, if the church did pray for James before he was murdered, let's just say that, then God did not answer their prayers by sparing G, James from the sword. And as horrible as that must have been for them to, to accept, this is what's amazing. They did not allow that to stop them from praying for Peter as he sat in that jail cell. When we, when we pray to God in the middle of suffering, may our attitude, you guys, be the same attitude as, as of, of Jesus when he was suffering in the garden before he was going to the cross and he was, he was, he was drops of blood were coming from his head because of the anguish. And he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's the prayer we need to pray God would help us pray. And so the the prayers of the church were making an impact. And then let's read what happens here in verses 6 to 11. It says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. 
And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So throughout the Bible, we read about God revealing himself to people through one of his angels, right? And almost always when angels appear to people, the angels tell people to fear not and to calm down because the sight of the angel is so frightening. But in this passage, it's interesting, Peter doesn't appear to be scared at all by the presence of this angel. And in fact, Peter is sleeping real soundly, so soundly that the angel has to hit him on the side to wake him up. This is a different Peter than we'd seen a few years earlier. And by this point in Peter's life, he was so accustomed to seeing visions from God and having angels visit him that it doesn't even faze him to see another angel. Remember, this wasn't Peter's first time being rescued by an angel in prison. This, this happened in Acts 5 also. Now, for some reason in this passage, Peter thinks that this latest escaping from prison by angel scenario is just a dream. And it's not until the angel leads him out of the cell, through the iron gate, down the city street, that Peter pinches himself and realizes, this is real. God's rescued me again. So let's keep reading in verses 12 to 17. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Okay, so Peter goes to the house of this woman named Mary. And this was the, the house where some of the Christians in Jerusalem had gathered to pray for Peter. And this Mary was the mother of John Mark. You've heard of the Gospel of Mark. This is the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And John Mark was also cousin of Barnabas, okay, who we read about last week. And when Peter knocked at the front gate of Mary's house here in the middle of the night, Mary's servant girl named Rhoda, she comes out to see who it is. She hears Peter's voice. She's so excited it's him, she doesn't even let him in. She just runs back into the house where everybody else is praying, and she tells him that Peter's outside. 
And even though they'd been earnestly praying for Peter, they forgot that God might actually answer their prayer in an amazing way. And so they just say, you are out of your mind. You're crazy. There, there isn't anybody out there. It must be Peter's guardian angel because there's no way that Peter was going to escape that prison cell and the 16 soldiers that were guarding him. But he kept knocking. And eventually, Peter kept knocking, and eventually some of them came out front and saw Peter at the gate, and they let him in, and they, he tells them to be quiet because it's the middle of the night. And Peter tells them how God's angel had freed him from prison again. And the Holy Spirit, then it's, it's real clear he must have had other plans for Peter because Peter gets out of there real fast. And Peter tells them, tell James and the brothers what happened, and then Peter leaves. And by this point, um, just there's a lot of names in this passage, so I'm just explaining it a little bit. At this point, Peter had handed over much of his authority over the church in Jerusalem to this man named James and to the elders there. And this James was obviously not the James we talked about earlier, the brother of John who had been martyred. This was James, the brother of Jesus who is now one of the key leaders in the Jerusalem church and who would write the book of James. And then verses 18 to 19 say, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death and then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So Peter's escape from prison, man, this would have been a major embarrassment to the soldiers and to the Roman government and especially to King Herod because this wasn't just some prisoner who had escaped. This was the top guy. This is like, you think about the most wanted list? They got the most wanted guy and then he escaped on their watch with 16 guards guarding him. And for Herod, on a personal note, this means, oh no, I'm not gonna be worshiped. All the people aren't gonna love me anymore. It's gonna, this is gonna have a negative effect on my reputation. And so it says that Herod, what does he do? He interrogates all the guards to see if this was an inside job. And in the Roman government, they were much less flexible than current, our, our government. And nobody could figure out what had happened. They all, they're talking to each other. And so Herod said, okay, we'll put you all to death. That's what he did. And then it says Herod got out of town and he went to his mansion on the coast in Caesarea to spend time there. The prayers of the church, you guys, which, which God sovereignly planned and used to free Peter from prison what do, they, what do they show us, right? The prayers ordained by God show us the power of God. They show us the power of a praying church. And they show us the, the real ability of God to do more than we could ask or imagine, right? These New Testament promises and pretty verses are not just promise, or pretty verses. They, this is an example of it lived out. And even when God doesn't answer our prayers right now the way we want him to, we can trust that he's good, he is in control, 
He is still weaving. This is what he's doing. We have to remember this. The story doesn't revolve around us. The story revolves around what God is doing for the glory of his name. And what he's doing is he's weaving all things together on earth and in heaven for our good and for the glory of his own name. That's what's happening. And so what does that mean for us? Well, it means if, if we're in Christ, may God spur on us to be a church and to be individuals who rely daily on his strength and not our own. And to devote ourselves to prayer for more of his power and more of his strength and for his will in our lives. We've got a lot of people in our neighborhoods who are in different prison cells. They think they're free, but they're not. We have people in our workplaces, in our community, who are living in prison, and they think they're free, and they're not. Man, I listened to this great sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones yesterday. He said, you know what people need? You need the presence of God in your heart. That's what you need. Because what can happen is this. You can be rich. You can have, think everything's going great the way I'm doing life. But if you don't have God in your life, you're hosed. That's the truth. You're going to hell. That's the reality. And, and, and your life is delusion. It's a beautiful delusion that Satan wants you to think, man, this is, this is fine. I'm fine without God. I don't need it. He's got you trapped in prison and you don't even realize it. And so what we have to, who's gonna pray for the prisoners? How about the ones who've been set free? May, may, may we pray earnestly, you guys, as a church family, that God would break into the prison cells of our neighbors and shine the light onto them, just like he's shown the light in this passage. When we pray that God would give them eyes to see him and to trust him as he leads them out of the darkness, as he leads them out of the kingdom of darkness, out of their chains to sin and into the kingdom of light and into freedom from sin. That's what Jesus does. That's why he came. He came into the darkness to save us out of it. This is great news. Because it means the darkness doesn't have the last word for everybody. And if you haven't turned away from a life committed to sin and committed to the darkness, if you haven't turned to Jesus for freedom from sin, for salvation from hell, for, for eternal life and friendship and peace with God, he says this to you, turn to me today and be saved. Peter, what, 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 what did Peter say? He said the crowd was cut to the heart. And what did he say? Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. This is the good news of the grace of God for prisoners chained in the darkness. Thank you, Lord. Jesus alone is the rescuer. He's the, he's the one. He's the only one who came in and suffered our death sentence for us 
and broke our chains for us so that we might not suffer that death sentence for eternity, but be freed now and forever. That's why we live for the glory of his name. This is why we celebrate baptism. This is why baptism is a big deal. Because Jesus loves us so much, he says, I want you to visibly display the freedom that you have in me now. This is why we celebrate communion. (laughs) Because we never will forget we never want to forget how Jesus broke his body for us, how, how his blood was shed so that our, uh, our, our souls might be saved from sin, so that Jesus might make us alive to God. This is great news, you guys. And this passage gives us a picture of, this, of what Jesus has done for us and what he wants to do for many more. And how does he do that? He's appointed means to do that. He can do it however he wanted, but he's appointed you and me as the church to be in the trenches here, praying for those in the darkness, praying together as a gathered church, sharing the gospel and loving our neighbors and loving one another well while we do that. So as we prepare to take communion together, let's do this. Let's just have a few moments of silent prayer Let's pray for ourselves. If, if you have sins, you guys, if you have chains that are weighing you down, breaking your fellowship with God, acknowledge those to God, confess those to God. Ask for forgiveness. Claim your forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And if you don't have freedom from that, those chains, then you need Jesus. You need Jesus to free you. Let's just thank God for Man, for his great love for us and all the evidences of his grace in our lives. Let's just pray silently for a few minutes while the deacons come forward.